Good morning. How are you all today? A little warm, cool in here. Uh, my name's Will. I'm one of the elders here at East Glenville Church. And this morning, I'm going to be uh, pinch hitting for Pastor Mitch as he's away leading our short-term missions team over in the uh, Czech Republic. So I just want to say welcome to all of those who, of you who are here. Also, those of you who are watching online, a, a special shout out to some of those that are near and dear to my heart out in Colorado, Arizona, and Texas uh, this morning. Um, so this morning, I would like to tell you about one of my all-time favorite chapters in the Bible. This is a chapter that I find myself keep coming back to over and over again. In fact, there, I actually have three favorite chapters. Um, so I was wondering, what about you? Do you have a favorite chapter or maybe a passage or a verse that you find yourself keep coming back to? Maybe it's something that uh, has gotten you through a tough time in your life or something that you memorized when you were a child. But I hope you do. Hope you have a favorite passage. Um, like I said, I have three. Number three on the list is Deuteronomy chapter 8. Um, this um, chapter is uh, Moses is talking to the nation of Israel just before they go into the promised land, just before they're ready to cross the Jordan River and uh, go into the promised land. And so Moses takes this opportunity to remind them about all the things that God has done for them for the 40 years that they've been wandering around the wilderness, how he's provided. Ashley, can we switch to this one? Thank you. Yeah, I've got small ears, so this thing doesn't really work very well, so we'll get rid of that. Um, but uh, Moses reminds them about all the provision that God has done for them, food, clothing, shelter. But then Moses also provides two warnings to the people of Israel. The first warning is, don't get a big head. It's not because of who you are that God is bringing you into this great land. It's because of who he is. The second warning is, don't go after other gods and serve them. Serve the Lord your God only. So I find that this is one of my favorite chapters because I need that reminder about that it's God who provides, but I also need those warnings in my life. All good things come from God and don't ever go after other gods and serve them. My second favorite chapter, Ephesians chapter 2. This is a great chapter because it reminds us about what is God has done in our lives. The first three verses of chapter 2 paint a picture of what we were all like before we met Christ. It is not a pretty picture. Because of our sins, we are described as being spiritually dead. Not mostly dead like my princess bride friends may think about, but we are, we are dead dead. And because of that, what, what, well, what would happen to us if the, if the Bible just ended there? We would have no hope, no hope at all. In verse 4, though, the first two words of verse 4 kind of summarize the whole gospel. It says, but God. And then verse 4 goes on to elaborate, but God, because of his great love and mercy and grace, reaches down and despite of our sins, draws us into that relationship with himself. Ephesians 2 can be summarized in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That salvation is not of yourselves, not as a result of works that no one should boast. We can't earn our way. Only God's grace brings us into that relationship with him. So that's Ephesians 2. 
Then we get to Luke 15, my all-time favorite. Now, why is this my favorite? I think it's my favorite as I've thought about it because, once again, it describes for me who God is and what he has done. Who is the heart of this God that we come to worship here each and every week? So let me just kind of set the stage for you by rereading just the first two verses of Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So our text kind of makes it clear that these sinners and tax collectors are attracted to Jesus. They go to him. I think that might be a sermon for another day, is what made Jesus so attractive that people who are non-religious go to him to listen to him? But I'll leave that up to Pastor Mitch when he gets back uh, next week. Um, But we find that the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, are grumbling and complaining that Jesus would spend time eating and associating with this people, because this is something that they would never, ever do. Um, They wouldn't be caught dead doing this. However, we see that Jesus is different over and over again in the New Testament. We see that Jesus is different from the religious establishment of that day. He spends time with those who maybe are living questionable, questionable lifestyles, those who have a difficult time following and maybe understanding what God is all about. Now, you may wonder, why call out tax collectors? Why does it say tax collectors and sinners? Well, does anyone here work for the IRS? Um, Anyone? Okay, good, then I can speak freely uh, this morning. Uh, Not that anyone might be listening, but... uh, But in this day, Rome was the world power. And so in order, in fact, they they conquered most of the uh, land that surrounds the Mediterranean Sea during this time period. So in order to finance their empire, they would tax all the local provinces. Then that money would go back to fuel their empire. So they would hire locals to collect those taxes for them. So because of Israel, they would hire Israelites to collect the taxes. So they, the tax collectors were not like for two reasons. One is their countrymen considered them to be aiding and abetting the enemy, uh, the occupiers, the Romans. So they didn't like them for that reason. The second reason, it was not unknown for these people to skim a little bit off the top and put it in their own pockets. So for these two reasons, you'll see that the uh, religious leaders of those days would not associate with them. So in response to the grumbling and complaining from the religious leaders, Jesus in turn tells them three short stories. And we're going to look at each one uh, briefly. So the first one is found in verses 3 through 7. And it's about a shepherd who has 100 sheep. Well, actually has 99. 99 are safe and sound. However, one is gone lost. One is, one is missing and not part of the flock anymore. And why would Jesus tell these uh, people, why would he tell them a story about a shepherd? I think the answer is pretty clear. It's because shepherd was a common occupation back in these days. So as Jesus is telling the story to them, they would could easily relate to the subject matter that Jesus is talking about. However, for us, it's a little bit more difficult because as I, as I look out here, I don't see anyone that 
I think, as a shepherd. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. So for us, it might be a little harder to understand what it would take to go find the one lost sheep. We might think, oh, all I got to do is open my back door. I look in my fenced-in backyard and probably take me a minute or two to find them. Um, but that's not the picture that you should have in your head as Jesus is telling this story. Uh, back then, there's no fenced-in pastures. It's all open land. So imagine you, you had to go find one. Where would you go? What direction would you take off in? Well, let's see. Uh, the last time I remember that sheep still being part of the flock, we were in the pasture east of here. So that's where I'll go first. How long do you think you're going to be gone? Could be, maybe I'm gone, maybe it takes me several hours just to get to this place where I'm going to start my search. So maybe I'm going to be gone overnight. Maybe I'm going to be gone several days. So you might take a change of clothes, food, be a good idea. Uh, maybe some bedding, maybe a, a rod or a staff to help protect you in case you run across uh, animals that want to seek you out. Um, but imagine the effort that you would have to put in. You would go, you would go over maybe a hill, you go look in trees, bushes, you don't find it. So then what do you do? Go over the next hill, look, and you keep searching and searching. What kind of a reaction do you think you would have once you finally found it? Well, our text tells us in verses 5 and 6, we can see that the rejoicing that takes place when the shepherd finally finds that sheep, how he reacts puts it on his shoulders, goes back home, tells his friends, rejoice with me. I finally found the one that was lost. So that's the first story that Jesus tells. The second one is about a woman who has 10 coins. Once again, Jesus is telling a story to these religious leaders that they could easily relate to. Um, a woman has uh, 10 coins. She loses one, a silver coin. And these coins were not insignificant. Uh, the commentators on this passage say that each coin was about a day's wage. So what's a day's wage for you? And imagine if you'd lost that amount of money. What would you do? Well, as I thought about it, I would tear my house apart because a day's wage is not something that I can just easily do without. So you'd be looking everywhere, you know, is it in my pants pockets? Where, where might it be? It's also, commentators point out, that this coin probably had sentimental value to this woman. Uh, it was not uncommon uh, for a bride, when she got married, to be given a dowry of 10 silver coins. These were often fashioned into a headdress or a necklace, so it probably had sentimental as well as monetary value. Have you ever lost something like that? Not too long ago, my daughter was traveling uh, cross-country uh, flying, and she had a layover in, in an airport, and so she sit, was sitting at the gate, plugged in her iPad uh, to recharge it before her next flight, and you can probably guess where this story is going. She gets on her next flight, uh, eventually decides she wants to use her iPad. She searches her carry-on luggage. It's not there. Now she frantically searches her carry-on luggage. It's still not there. When she finally gets to her final destination, she makes frantic calls back to the airport, trying to get a hold of someone at the gate who could go look for this iPad. This was a Christmas gift to her, so it had sentimental value. She also used it all the time for her classwork. 
Several days later, she happened to be flying back home, was it st stopped at the same airport, ran to the gate and looked at exactly where she'd left it. It wasn't there. So this is the kind of effort that this woman is probably putting into looking for this coin. Our text tells us, you know, she, she can't flick on an electric light, so she's got a candle. Maybe she has windows in her home, but it's night, it's dark. So she's got a candle, a broom, and she's slowly sweeping bit by bit her dirt floor in order to try and find this coin. If you'd like to get a glimpse of the effort that it might take to do this, what I suggest for you is that you go to your favorite beach. So think of your favorite beach. If you don't have one, I recommend Clearwater Beach in Florida on the Gulf Coast. And then take a silver dollar. You gotta go out on a night where there's no moon, cloud cover, so it's dark. Take a silver dollar, throw it over your shoulder, and then turn around and go find it. Imagine what you'd be doing. You'd be down on your hands and knees. You would reach out with your hand. You'd take a handful of sand, and then you would slowly kind of sift that sand in your fingers, letting the grains of sand fall through until what you hope remains is that coin. You don't get anything. So then what do you do? You try again, try again, try again, until you keep going, until you would find that coin. And that's what the woman in our story does. She keeps searching until she finds the coin, and then what does she do? Rejoices with her friends. The coin that I lost, I've now found. Now we get to the third and most famous of the three short stories that Jesus tells the people. Uh, it's called the prodigal son. Um, I had to actually look up the word prodigal uh, to see what it means. It means to be wastefully or recklessly extravagant. And we'll see in a minute what, why it's called, this particular story is called that. But this particular story would have shocked the, relig the religious leaders uh, for three reasons. And the first reason it would have shocked them is what we see the son doing to his father in this particular story. We see a son asking for his inheritance while his father was still alive. This is the first thing that would have shocked them. Tim Keller, a retired pastor in New York City, uh, wrote a book about this particular short story, and here's what he has to say about the son's request. This story begins with a, sh a short but shocking request. The younger son comes to the father and says, give me my share of the estate. The original listeners would have been amazed by such a request. Not that there was anything amiss in the son's expectation of a share of the family wealth. In those days when a father died, the oldest son received a double portion of what the other children inherited. So if a father had two heirs, the oldest would have gotten two-thirds of the estate, and the younger would have received one-third. However, this division of the estate only occurred when the father died. Here the younger son asked for his inheritance now, which was a sign of deep respect. To ask this while the father still lived was the same as to wish him dead. The younger son was saying, essentially, that he wants the father's things, but not the father. His relationship to the father had been a means to the ends of enjoying his wealth, and now he's weary of that relationship. He wants out. Now, give me what is mine, he says. The second thing that would have shocked the Pharisees about this particular short story was the father's response. 
what do we see the father do? He actually does what the son requests. Tim Keller points out that this would have cost the father because his wealth would have been tied up in his livestock and his land. So he would have had to liquidate a part of that in order to be able to fulfill the son's request. And you all know the story. What does the son do? Goes off, blows all the money, and he reaches to such a low state that here we find a Jewish man ends up feeding pigs, something that obviously Jewish people would not be caught dead doing, but this guy reaches such a low point in his life. What does he have left? In verse 17, we see the son finally kind of coming to his senses saying, you know what, let, let me go back to my father. Maybe he'll treat me as one of his hired hands. I'm not worthy to be accepted back into the family because of what I've done, but at least I'll have food. I won't starve to death. And so he starts back home. Now we get to the part of the story that's really interesting, the part that the third thing that would have shocked these religious leaders. What do we see the father do in this story? Verse 20, the father sees his son coming from a long way off, and what does he do? What would you do if that was you in the story? If your son had come to you and said, Dad, wish you were dead, kind of give me your money, I'm going. And now you see him coming back after blowing all the money. How would you respond? We see the father, though, what does he do? He runs to his son. He doesn't wait for the son to get all the way home. He runs, embraces him, kisses him, restores him to the family. And then they get ready to throw a huge party. So why does Jesus eat and hang out with sinners? I've kind of come up with five things. I know if you go to preacher school, you only are supposed to have three points. Um, but I've got five. You probably have some others of your own. Uh, so the first one, why does Jesus eat and hang out with sinners? Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Um, a few ch short chapters later in Luke chapter 19, once again we see Jesus hanging out with another tax collector. This one is a name, but uh, his name is, is Zacchaeus. Um, you all probably know this story as well. He's a short man, and probably we would say he's vertically challenged these days. And so Jesus is walking by, and a crowd is gathered, and so Zacchaeus can't see over the crowd. So he climbs up into a tree to see what's going on. Jesus walks by Zacchaeus' tree and says to him, anyone going to sing it with me? Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus is thrilled with this, that Jesus would call him out and want to spend time with him again. So they head off to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus says, you know, Lord, I'm going to give away half of all that I have to the poor. Jesus says two things in response. The first thing is, today salvation has come to this household. And the second thing he says in describing himself, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So why does Jesus hang out with Zacchaeus? Because Zacchaeus was lost, and Jesus wants to seek and to save those who are lost. Just like the shepherd seeks out the one lost sheep or the woman who searched for that one lost coin. Second reason, God wants all men to be saved. He's not satisfied with 99 
as we see in the first story that Jesus told, they have 99 out of the 100. God wants all of them. 2 Timothy verses 2, or chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires that all men come all men come to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God, through his son Jesus, is seeking out those who have wandered away from him. So why does Jesus eat with sinners? Because he wants all men to have that opportunity for salvation. Three, God is the prodigal one. In fact, Tim Keller makes it a point that he doesn't like the headings in in this chapter about each of the three short stories because it's not about the lost coin. It's not about the lost sheep. It's not about the prodigal son. It's about the one who seeks. And so God is prodigal. God wants to be recklessly extravagant with his grace. And that's what he's done with each one of us. He's been recklessly extravagant because he has shown his grace to us when we did nothing to merit that grace. We did nothing to merit that. That last story was a great picture of the grace of God when the father sees his son coming back and runs to him and greets his son. One of my favorite verses is Romans 5.8, which says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were giving no thought to God, God still sent his son Jesus to die for us on the cross. Number four. I think the Pharisees and other religious leaders had a lot to learn about what, it mean, what, what God is up to in this world. They are the ones that should have been seeking out these sinners and tax collectors. They are the ones that should have been seeking out the lost, meeting them where they are, and then working with them to restore them to a relationship with God. I think they also did not have a very good grasp of the grace of God. You don't earn salvation by keeping a set of laws. Salvation is dependent on the one who seeks and the grace of the Father. Lastly, I think heaven loves to rejoice. And all th- a common theme that we see in all three stories is that there is rejoicing in heaven when the one who is lost is finally found. Not too long ago, my wife and I had an opportunity to go visit a Young Life camp down in Virginia. Uh, several hundred kids come uh, for a week at the camp. Um, and the last day of this particular camp, they have what they call a club meeting. Uh, several hundred kids and about 75 children stood up one at a time and said three things. Said their name, where they were from, and that they had decided to follow Jesus. I can't tell you how, how emotional it was that day to be able to see each of these children stand up and say that they want to be Jesus' followers. Can you imagine the rejoicing that that went on in heaven that day when these 75 kids stood up? Heaven loves to rejoice when the one lost person is found. That's Luke 15. That's my all-time favorite chapter. It reminds me of what God and Jesus has done, how he has sought us out. And I hope maybe that's meant something to you as well. Now, what should we do with this chapter? I have a couple suggestions for you this morning. First, let me speak to you, those of you who are Jesus followers. 
My suggestion for you this morning is get together with God sometime today and think back about how did God seek you out? How did God draw you into a relationship with himself? Maybe he used a family member, a friend, a church, a tract, a Billy Graham crusade. God is not restricted to one way. How did he seek you out? And then spend time in prayer with him, just thanking him to be the God that seeks out the lost and thanking him for that, that he sought you out. Secondly, let me talk to you, those of you who are not Jesus followers. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're listening online, uh, trying to figure out what Christianity is all about. Maybe a friend brought you to church this morning. My suggestion to you is talk to a person that you trust. Talk to a person that you know who follows Jesus and get your questions answered. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? I hope this morning you got a glimpse of the Father who seeks out those who have wandered away from him. I hope you've gotten a glimpse of the heart of God. I'll be down up front here on the left uh, after the service is over. If you don't have anyone else to talk to, please come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Okay, that's it. Now we're going to sing our last song this morning. Uh, so as Chantel and the worship team come up, I asked them to do this song. Uh, it's come the fount of every, every blessing, one of my favorite hymns, and especially in verses two and three, because those words kind of echo some of the themes that we've talked about here through uh, Luke 15.